Hey everybody, this is Ben dropping you a quick note. Our editors have been working hard to get episodes finished to release on schedule with the reading of the week. Our hope is that listeners will have the chance to engage with the content and share meaningful ideas in their circles of family, friends, and church. In order to meet this goal, this episode has been released with minimal editing. We are looking for additional volunteers to join the team and help with editing, social media management, and content creation. If you are interested, please reach out to us on Facebook or email latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com. You can also donate to the project, helping us cover the costs of things like website hosting and podcast platform fees. Donations can be made through PayPal by going to our website, latterdaypeacestudies.org, clicking Get Involved, and scrolling down to the donate box. Thanks so much to all who have helped out and donated over the years. We are sincerely grateful. Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Hello, Christopher. Good to be back with you. We are going to be covering the first reading of the book of Isaiah today. That is chapters 1 through 12 of Isaiah. Before we get into any actual commentary on the text, we're going to do probably most of the time, I would say we're probably going to do some context for the book of Isaiah because it warrants quite a bit of context. And it, you know, the book of Isaiah sort of holds a special place within Latter-day Saint canon. It's quoted all over the place in the book of Mormon. And it's given particularly authoritative endorsement, not just by Nephi, but in third Nephi by Jesus. So the book of Isaiah, you know, this has been interpreted many times to fit the narratives of different religious traditions. It fits within the Jewish tradition in a particular way. It fits within the overall Christian tradition in a particular way. And then it fits within the Latter-day Saint tradition in another particular way. And there are other sort of branches to that as well. But each of these traditions has taken this book and interpreted it within their context to mean certain things. And that is, you know, one of the reasons, perhaps that's what makes the book of Isaiah good scripture. You know, it continues to speak within different religious contexts. I guess you could say that might make it bad scripture too. I don't know. What do you think, Christopher? Perhaps, yes, both and, of course. <laughs> so, you know, with Isaiah, there's there's several things to consider in terms of interpretation. And one of the things that can be very difficult about it is getting at what the author or authors, as we'll get into, really intended with what they wrote. And as much as you try to get into the history and geography and cultural context of the time, Isaiah is just one of those really tough nuts to crack in terms of getting back to original intent, so to speak, right? And so again, like I was saying, 
it's been reinterpreted through different traditions, particularly in the New Testament and then also all over in the Book of Mormon. So we can take the Book of Isaiah and first look at it and try to sort of figure out what the original intent was. And there's a lot of clues to that, you know, pulling in from history and other context. We can also take it, like I said, reinterpreted through different traditions like the New Testament and the Book of Mormon. We can say, what does the book of Isaiah say about the Messiah or within their you know, Christian tradition, we use that Greek translation of that. What does it say about the Christ? And then, you know, stepping forward in that abstraction as well, what does it say about us individually? This is what we do with all of scripture. But in our tradition, we look at Isaiah as being something that has particular messianic and Christ-like, Christological tones to it. And so that's something that we, we're we going to try to provide some context for and discuss, but it's also something that we are going to wrestle with a little bit as well. Yeah. So we have, you know, you, you have major prophets and minor prophets in the Christian tradition. This is a distinction. It's not in the Jewish tradition. The Jewish canon is, is arranged differently. The book of Isaiah, we think of not only as a major prophet, but as the major prophet. And Ben, you've already hinted at one of the reasons we think that way. But perhaps there's another one, and that is all the chapters, right? And so in listening to a podcast on the book of Isaiah, Pete Enns ruins Isaiah from the Bible for normal people. And and I first heard Pete Enns, by the way, Ben, on the Maxwell Institute podcast, when his book, The Sin of Certainty, was new. Mm. I think that's subtitled, Why God Wants Our Trust More Than Our Correct Belief, something like that. And as Pete Enns points out, you have to look at the number of words, and not in English, in Hebrew, to find out you know, which is the, the major prophet in terms of writings, at least. right? And so that would be Jeremiah. And in the, in the Christian tradition... Lamentations is thought possibly to be by Jeremiah, and so it has more importance than it does in the in the Jewish canon. But it's there's something like four thousand more words in Jeremiah than there are in Isaiah. It is called in the Christian tradition sometimes it's called the fifth gospel. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've heard that in in an LDS setting. Have you heard that, Ben? I had not, but I have heard it from multiple sources since I've started looking more into the book of Isaiah. Yeah. And so it it makes sense, though, because so many quotations, so many citations of the book of Isaiah in the New Testament, although there are more from the Psalms. You know, it's interesting to me that the book of Isaiah within maybe the broader Christian tradition could be called the fifth gospel because, you know, in the Latter-day Saint tradition, we have that section in the Book of Mormon, you know, starting with chapter 35, chapter 11, which is kind of our fifth gospel, right? Because you have Jesus coming and he and he gives like the Sermon on the Mount and then he speaks with the people and it's he does a lot of the, the same types of things that we see, you know, recorded in the four gospels. And but during that time, one of the things that Jesus says is you need to read Isaiah because he talks about you know, all kinds of things. He says he speaks concerning all things concerning my people. And then also, again, as I said, in the Book of Mormon, we have Nephi that heavily comments 
on Isaiah. So yeah, I mean, I think within our tradition, we very much could look at Isaiah as the fifth or even sixth gospel, right? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Who has Isaiah been? The son of Amos. That's a good answer. He's from <laughs> Jerusalem, right? Yeah. And what's his job? What would you say is his job? So Isaiah is a prophet in a time of crisis. And so he kind of becomes the sort of the manager of these, these crises that are going on at the time. They're mostly political or they're maybe all political, geopolitical that have to do with the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And then, you know, later it's going to be the Persians. But, you know, you ask an interesting question, who is Isaiah? And, and the assumption there is that it's like, one person, right? And what we find out is that as we look at the text, that there are probably at least two, maybe three or more authors that have contributed to the book of Isaiah. And they've all done so, you know, sort of pseudoepigraphally, right? At least the first one, maybe not, but the others have followed along and their writings have contributed, have all been compiled into this book of Isaiah. But the first, it's something like 39 chapters, I think. Chapters 1 through 39 are considered to be part of the this first Isaiah. And it's distinctly, literarily, it's distinct from the the other chapters in the book. And it's also set within a particular time period, which is pre-exilic, right? This is before the Babylonian exile when Isaiah is prophesying. And he's talking about all these political things that are going on and tying them into a theological context within the, you know, the Jewish, within the Jewish community and, you know, remember at the time, you know, there's not really a huge difference between religion and political matters. You know, these are very much tied together, not very much a distinction at all. And so for him to be making these sort of theological or prophetic or religious statements about political events is not only normal for the time, but fits very well within the context. And so some of the things that make Isaiah difficult to understand theologically are that we don't understand the political or historical or geographic realities of the time. And as you start learning those things, then some of Isaiah starts making a little more sense. Yeah, it really does. So Isaiah, you mentioned, is a crisis manager. He's dealing with there are different times of crisis that occur in the book of Isaiah following along with the with what you said about the different authors of Isaiah that there that there's more than one Isaiah there's more than and by the way what what that means is that the first Isaiah is Isaiah son of Amos of Jerusalem and the others are pseudepigraphal authors of you as you've mentioned yeah who may or may not have been named Isaiah <laughs> right exactly so so you do have well so what we're looking at is an expansion of the scripture. And this is something that you've hinted at. And we'll go into that into, in, in more detail, right? That that it was expanded upon by the redactors, that it's expanded upon by the Christians later, that it's, it's expanded upon by the, by the Latter-day Saints, right? This is what, and this is living scripture, right? As you've pointed out, this is something that, that like all great literature keeps on giving. 
Right? You can get so much out of it. And it's interesting because I think it's it's actually, although Nephi says plain are the words of Isaiah, it's actually really hard to understand. And and it's not just the context or lack thereof, you know, if, if you're lacking the context, but it's also the language, you know, and it's it's so highly symbolic. And, and so if we try to take it literally, and if we think something like Isaiah is talking about things that are going to happen hundreds of years in the future, when he's probably dealing with matters that are closer at hand. You know, there is a sense in which we think of prophets as predicting the future. Well, okay, Isaiah is speaking to the the political, religio-political concerns of his time, geopolitical concerns, these kinds of things. He's, you know, surrounded by empires and expansion, and he's reading the writing on the wall, and he's saying, guys, this is what's coming. Right. So, yes, he's making predictions about the future, but they're not, you know, necessarily. I just don't think they're about hundreds of years in the future. Now, can we now reinterpret what Isaiah said, this highly symbolic language, this apocryphal language? And yes, we can. And and Christians did and Latter-day Saints do and, and, and Christians still do. Even Jews did. And even Jews did. Exactly. Yeah, I think one of the things that Isaiah does, or, and we're going to start, we're, you know, this is the beginning of the prophets, right? This is the section that's the prophets. And Isaiah is the first of this section. So we're really going to be dealing with this kind of thing for here on out, right? Through the end of the Old Testament. And that's that they're, they're, they're seeing patterns within the society and they're speaking to particular societal ills. We get that through Isaiah, there's a lot of things about, you know, oppression of the poor and and other stuff as well. That's a major theme within Isaiah. And they're seeing these and Jeremiah. Soci- and Jeremiah, yeah. They're seeing these societal patterns and they're teaching these principles about it. And, you know, all those things are are perfectly relevant to any time and place. So no wonder people would see this and they'd see these principles and be like, oh, that's that's a good thing. And then they'd start drawing that out and and seeing, oh, look at how this story applies to me. And, you know, politics is always on the mind of of people in in power everywhere. So they would always, I think, look at Isaiah as something that might be able to be patterned after their time as well. At the same time, you know, I see the reinterpretations and, and adaptations of Isaiah as a type of what we today might call memes. You know, we, we take these, these short little snippets or, or just images from something that's very well known. These are allusions to a pop culture often. And then we take them and put them in a different context to make either a humorous point or a political point or something. And that point may not be may only be very tangentially related to, you know, where this still shot came from. But because people understand, you know, what is happening in that still shot, you know, it makes that that funny point. And so that's what happens with Isaiah a lot. It's proof texted, like they take these verses or these phrases from Isaiah, and they use them in other contexts. And, you know, we've talked about proof texting before, and, and how it can, you know, kind of be a negative thing because it's it can be used to deceive. But I think in a lot of these traditions that they're doing this, they're seeing the value in the words and the verbiage of Isaiah, and they're taking it and adapting it to their cause. I mean, we do this with Shakespeare too, right? Like any great literature, you're going to take these phrases and pull them completely out of context just because they fit so well with what you're trying to say. And I see that happening right. with Isaiah. 
And like Shakespeare, Isaiah is a great poet. Mm-hmm. And so it's his language, of course, that gets borrowed and quoted and recycled and and put on memes and et cetera, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is the idea. And so, but what is a prophet doing then? So a prophet, you, you mentioned some things that prophets do, the things that they speak about, why we've mentioned why the context a little bit for Isaiah at least. We'll we'll talk about the context of the other prophets as we encounter them. But you have someone who's who feels called of God to speak out about the things that that they see that are wrong, right? So something's wrong and, and something it's it's about justice, right? Social justice. A lot of the issues that you mention are social justice issues. Uh-huh. We we could say they're social justice warriors. Although this, this might not might not agree with some listeners, that has more baggage to sure, yeah. So with different context, right? But they are speaking about these social issues, and so I, I was going to give an example, for, you know, borrowed from Pete Enns. How about somebody like MLK, Martin Luther King Jr. Right? Here's someone who has a vision of a future that's different from the future, and and of course, there's there's a reason why we can't have that future now. And he speaks to that, the injustices that have to be addressed so that that future can come to pass. It's very much like a prophet, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And and the kind of language that's used, you know, remember, we're in a crisis. That This is every time, whether it's first, second, third Isaiah, they're all different crises that we're dealing with. Beginning here with the first Isaiah with the, with the Assyrians. So... We, it's not that unfamiliar to us, the kind of rhetoric that we're going to see in the prophets, because we have people tell us, and by the way, it I just you can pick either side of the aisle. Both sides of the aisle are doing it. If you don't vote for this candidate, the, and they'll tell you all about the future, right? This is the future that's going to happen. America's going to be destroyed, yeah. Yes, yes. Or, or if you vote for this candidate, the, the other way around, right? Yeah. And so that's the kind of that's the kind of rhetoric that we see here. One of the things we talked about previously, Christopher, when we were discussing this, was the the value, as with all other things we found, but the value that we found in reading a different translation of Isaiah. And for me, there there was another aspect to it this time than, for instance, when I was reading different translations of the Psalms and Proverbs. And for me, it was because I was so familiar with the language, particularly of these first 11, 12 chapters of Isaiah. I was so familiar with the King James language of that because those are the chapters that Nephi quotes in the Book of Mormon. I mean, he does others as well, but particularly those. And so I was so familiar, again, with that language that reading it in a different translation made it feel a little fresh and and newer to me. And so some things came out that wouldn't have otherwise. And that's a really, that's a benefit. Another benefit to reading another translation, you see things that you didn't otherwise see or that you had maybe taken for granted because you were just so familiar with the language. And so this sort of, you know, twists that, that focus a little bit. So you see a little different facet of the thing that you're looking at. We talk about how translation helps us sort of triangulate meaning when we can't when we don't know that original language well enough to to really get at the those words and so those translations help us help us do that. Yeah, I had the same experience Ben as to bring together a couple of ideas you've expressed. I think what happens when you read those 
passages that you know so well in a certain context, right? You know them in the context of reading the Book of Mormon. You know them, them in the context of your Mormon experience, right? Your, your Latter-day Saint experience. And uh-huh. so you have this, all of those things come to mind, right? It's like when you, it's like when you smell a smell, and it yeah. reminds you of, or you hear a song, right? So when you, in fact, the song is an apt comparison, right? Because you're talking about poetry here. So now you have this, even though the, the King James Version does not give us verse translation of what is verse in the original, it is highly poetic language nonetheless. And so it evokes all of those things. And so when you go out of that translation into another translation, where you already have other reasons to do this that we've covered, but here you get to see through fresh eyes and maybe get at the original intention knowing that all of the the interpretations are valid right all of them can can be found in well they're found in the traditions that that interpreted the text in that way at those traditions that hold that text sacred yes another thing that was valuable that i got from it and i think would be valuable for others as well is that it helps push away from dogmatic interpretations of the text because especially with a tradition that is very much steeped in the King James language, sometimes we will focus on particular words and these would be English words, right? In that translation. And we imbue them with more meaning than maybe the intention was. And again, there is value to that, but If we step back, we read another translation, then we start realizing, oh, that's not the only way to interpret this because I was just reading a translation and the translator chose that word, right? And they could have chosen a different word. And there's not a specific, all-encompassing, absolute, 100% reason why they chose that word, right? There's all kinds of baggage that goes along with that. And so- Again, it helps us, you know, step away from that dogmatic interpretation to say this is the only word that it could be, whereby saying this is the only way to interpret this verse. There's multiple ways to view these scriptures and they all can be, you know, viewed beautiful or or I guess we could say there are some ways that are better than others obviously to interpret scripture, but there's not necessarily one way. Well, and again, we're talking about highly symbolic language here and, and in poet and poetry, right? It's actually it's actually poetry. So given that it's apocryphal and that it's uh, poetic, it's, again, highly symbolic language. And, you know, we can't just take it literally. I actually have an, a passage I want to share, Ben, from another reading I'm doing. My daughter was assigned Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States in her college U.S. history class. She's a first-year college student. And so I'm reading along with her. And here's something from, this is from a Creek man, more than 100 years old, named Speckled Snake. And he's responding or reacting to Andrew Jackson's policy of removal. Okay, so this is what he says. Brothers, I have listened to many talks from our great white father. When he first came over the wide waters, he was but a little man, very little His legs were cramped by sitting long in his big boat, and he begged for a little land to light his fire on. But when the white man had warmed himself before the Indians' fire and filled himself with their hominy, he became very large, 
With a step he bestrode the mountains, and his feet covered the plains and the valleys. His hand grasped the eastern and the western sea, and his head rested on the moon. He then became our great father. He loved his red children, and he said, Get a little further, lest I tread on thee. Brothers, I have listened to a great many talks from our great father, but they always began and ended in this. Get a little further, you are too near me. So highly symbolic language. If you don't know the context in, in, in which this is said, you know, the Indian removal policy right. that he's reacting to, what do you make of this? Yes, so it would be so strange, yeah. Right, and if you read it literally, so someone is so tall that he can leap over mountains, right, etc. Right. So yeah. that this this is why I wanted to share this because, again, when we read Isaiah, we think, oh, you know, this is it's. I know what this is, right? We we all know what Isaiah is. Yeah, we all know exactly what Isaiah means, and we all don't know what Isaiah means too. But. Right. I just <laughs> I just don't know that 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 it's that easy to understand Isaiah now. If you know that, again, you, your U.S. history, then this highly symbolic language is easy to interpret. But if you don't know Isaiah's context, then his highly symbolic language is not going to be as easy to interpret. Now, of course, you can keep your, your tradition's interpretation, but what would be the case then, Ben, for, for actually understanding the original context? What would you say? Well, th- so this is a point that Nephi makes, you know, he says that for him, Isaiah is plain, right? And it's not necessarily obvious that that's the case. You know, I think Nephi has some some trouble with it as well. But, you know, he's saying that he understands the culture of the people and the geography and stuff like that. And so Isaiah makes a whole lot more sense to him. Starting and trying to dig for an an original intent or or meaning of this can then help us move into other types of interpretations. But if we don't start there, or, you know, that's probably not the right way to put it. I don't know that we need to start there, but I think that it's definitely a very important road to go down to enrich or inform a a meaningful additional interpretation of it. There's many ways to read Isaiah. Not all of them are good, There's but there's no one way to read it. I would say even the original intent is not the only meaning to get at. You know, there's going to be people that are say, well, you know, let's let's just look at what this originally meant and that's the real meaning. And it's it's like, well, no, because this has been reinterpreted and adapted for thousands of years within different traditions. So it does mean more than that because it has been used to influence culture and religion and movements and individuals in many, many ways for thousands of years. And so it definitely means more than what maybe just the original intention was. Not only are there different contexts in which it has been interpreted and different, you know, meaning time and place and and who's doing it, right? Whether it's the Jews or the Christians, whether it's the Latter-day Saints, you know, so that's one thing. Another is that there there are different ways to read. There are different levels of interpretation. There's the famous work of Dante from El Convivio, the banquet. There's the letter to Can Grande de la Scala, which may be apocryphal. I think one or the other or both goes into this, but you have the, the literal interpretation, which is the most obvious meaning on the face of it, the allegorical, which 
is one that tends to understand the literal as being symbolic of something else. And that, going all the way back to our introduction to the Bible, is what has been done mostly with the Bible. Right? That's what we do. We say, it says this, but it means something else. The moral reading right, draws ethical principles from the literal action and the anagogical which is to apply the principle to the final state of the, of the believer himself or herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are levels of interpretation too. So all of that goes into this. And this is, you know, that's from a, a medieval thinker, a great medieval thinker, Dante Alighieri. One of the things we mentioned briefly, or I mentioned briefly previously, Christopher, was we talked about how there's probably more than one author here, more than one Isaiah. Right. The scholars look at this and they say chapters 1 through 39 are going to be this first Isaiah, this pre-exilic Isaiah. And then chapters 40 through 46, at least, are going to be a, a second Isaiah that's like within the exile period, maybe the late exile period. And then... It could be that there's a third Isaiah that takes over after chapter 46 or around 46, and that would be a post-exilic Isaiah. There's controversy. There's quite a bit of controversy, even even among scholars, about you know whether there's a second or whether there's a third Isaiah. But there's a pretty solid consensus that there is definitely at least two Isaiahs because the writing style and and themes and focus are completely different. They change completely at chapter 40. Well, not only that, but as you've pointed out, they come from different periods, and and that's saying something, but there's more to be said, and that is that the pre-exilic Isaiah speaks of, again, the writing on the wall, what's going to come is this exile. This is what's going to happen. I can see it. And the second, or Deuter-Isaiah, is, is talking about it as it already happened, right? It's in the past. And so this is a clear uh, clue, right? This is, and this is one of many, mm-hmm. right? There, there are other clues. But, you know, there's some passages, you know, that, that are quoted um, as having to do with Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted to go into these passages, at least the ones that show up in this week's reading, right? Yeah. 1 through 12, am- among other things, if you're ready to go into that. Yeah, there's a few of those. Because I want to talk about how we can about how we can read what the the New Testament writers are doing such that we can a, a new way to think about it, right? A way to understand that even they, not only is Isaiah not necessarily talking about Jesus of Nazareth, even when he talks about a Messiah, it's no, nobody even like Jesus of Nazareth, right? But not only that, but even Matthew himself in, in writing about the Messiah or about Jesus as the Messiah and quoting from Isaiah is not necessarily thinking that Isaiah was thinking of Jesus in that way. What, what the New Testament authors do is they find the themes, as we've been doing, Ben, and you can't help yourself, right? We, as we've gone through this, we've picked up on themes, and you find the themes in the life of the people of Israel as a whole, right? The people Israel. And and then tries to make Jesus embody the people Israel. Yes. That's what's meant by fulfilling. 
So when they talk about in the New Testament, Jesus fulfilling the law or fulfilling the prophecies, see, that is acting it out. Like he's he's putting it, he's making it flesh, right? He's actually, the, the word made flesh is, as it is, he's fulfilling those things. And I think sometimes that English word is a little bit too vague or ambiguous for us. And I've heard it interpreted as, Fulfilling mean like, you know, putting away or, or, um, you know, finishing. So it's done and it's filled out or it's, it was predicted and then it happened, right? It's like somebody's looking at this is going to happen and then it happens. But fulfillment in the New Testament is more about acting out that pattern, acting out that principle so that it's made manifest as an example for everyone to see. Yeah. So a couple more things before we actually, before we go into the, some of these, what Pete Enns calls Jesus-y passages, the passages that are cited by the New Testament authors that we think of Isaiah as speaking about Jesus of Nazareth, as I've explained, right? Our chapter headings would say messianic. <laughs> right. Yeah. So th- there's just a couple other things I wanted to mention here. So one is another clue when, when it comes to the second Isaiah is that second Isaiah, if it is Isaiah, he's writing in the eighth, late 8th, early 7th century BCE, right? But he's going to tell us the name of Cyrus from the 6th century, from, from a later time. Now, of course, the, again, if we think that prophets are in the business of predicting these long-range things, then this seems, of course he says that, right? It seems natural that he should say that. But it really doesn't make any sense to the people that he's speaking to. What would it mean to them, Ben, to, to name this Cyrus, right? Yeah, yeah it wouldn't have any significance. Yeah, so the, this is just among the, the clues that, that scholars find to the different. And, and if, you, if you yourself read, you know, past chapters, if you've read 1 through 39, this is something I noticed when reading Job. I mentioned this when we recorded the episode on Job that when you get to the Elihu passage, it just feels completely different mm-hmm. from, from what you've been reading. And by the way, this is, uh, this is, that's another example. Isaiah is another example of the same thing we saw in Job where the text gets added to and it gets, you know, I, I think added to is the best way to put it. And, you know, somewhere, especially in, in evangelical tradition, right, and they have it in with the, the Latter-day Saints, for adding to the Bible, right? Because you can't add, but that idea happens so much later. The idea that you can't yeah. add to this, there's no, there's no closed canon when, when this yeah. is coming together. Well, Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter four, says don't add to or take away from the law, right? And what's so, what's so ironic about that to me ever since you know studying this and understanding the origin of the book of Deuteronomy is that the whole book of Deuteronomy is an addition to the law. And, right. Uh, so, but, but obviously it's, it's getting at something else. It's not, it's not a commentary on the fact that there's this single book called the Bible that, you know, had all these blank pages and then throughout history, God just wrote in it. And when he got to the last page, you know, then it was, it was done, right? These are scrolls that are collected and compiled and edited and redacted and lost and rediscovered and put together and taped together and super glued together. And right, like (laughs) you're getting carried away, Ben. Yeah, I am getting carried away. But it's the point here is that, you know, this is, 
the word Bible just comes from the same root as a library, right? So like this right. is a collection of books. It's not a book. We put it for convenience sake in a single book, but this is many books put together. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, another thing I wanted to mention uh, dovetails nicely with what you just said, and that is that if I didn't already say this, right, that chapters one through 39 also have stuff that that seems like it comes from later that's put back into those chapters. Mm -hmm. So so on the one hand, you have first and second Isaiah, one earlier, you know, late eighth, early seventh century BC, one later, sixth century BC. And then on the other hand, you have stuff that comes from later that's actually in those first 39 chapters. How do you say collated, I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's and so there and then there's a unity to Isaiah, right? And yes. that unity has led conservatives to argue that that this idea that there's more than one Isaiah is silly, right? But the unity is more, it's not authorial unity, it's it's a unity that comes from from the redactors, from the editors of the text. Sure. Imagine, Christopher, if someone had taken all the letters that are attributed to Paul and put them in a single book and just named it the book of Paul, right? And and instead of it being to the Corinthians and the Romans and the Philippians and all this sort of stuff, those were, you know, different sections within the book, but it was all the book of Paul. Well, come to find out, Paul himself didn't actually write all of these letters. They were, you know, either pseudo-epigraphal or maybe written by a close associate or or somebody else. And, and we don't really know who wrote them, but they, you know, they could be Paul. And so they get traditionally attributed to Paul. But at the time when they were putting this all together, they thought, oh, these are all just letters of Paul. So they put them together, right? And so they all they all go under the name Paul. And I kind of see similar thing happening here with Isaiah. Yeah, you know, that that may have made it even harder to figure out that those letters probably weren't all written by Paul. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we'll get to that. So I guess, you know, if you want to go into some of the passages that we, that we want to go into in these first 12 chapters, we don't have to go into all the Jesus-y passages tonight, but we could at least cover the one or two that, that are in this week's reading. Yeah, sure. Let's We can start with those. So at I think it's the first one that comes up is in chapter seven. And this is in the King James version, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, right? Right. Now let's do this though. Let's not read from King James version. Well, I, I'm bringing that up so people know what verse we're talking about, but I agree I with you because we need to first point out the verse. This is the verse we're talking about. Everybody knows this verse, right? Like we sing songs about it and, and this is what's quoted in the new Testament because the reason it's quoted is because by the time that they have this text, it's in Greek and they're reading the Greek version, which has already been translated as virgin. So that is the word that then is used to describe Mary, right? And and it's been translated into Greek as virgin, which, you know, in and even in our language today means a woman that hasn't known a man, right? And But that was not the Hebrew word. That was the Greek word that it was translated into. Right. It's just a young girl. And and even even the word, you know, the, one, the word we're using, it comes from the Latin and it actually means the same thing, a young girl. And as a matter of fact, and I'm sure this will come up again when we get to the New Testament, but as a matter of fact, at the time that Jesus comes into the world, if a woman gets married, knows a man, 
And the first time she knows him, she becomes pregnant. This is considered a virgin birth. Right. That's that's another tidbit, if you will. Okay, so what verse are we reading here in chapter 7? 14. So I'm going to read from verse 13, Ben. And Isaiah said, Listen, pray, O house of David. Is it not enough for you to worry men, that you should worry my God as well? Therefore the master himself shall give you a sign. The young woman is about to conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. So a couple of things here, Ben. First of all, you have a young woman, not a virgin, which by the way is just a young woman, or at least what was, right? That's the Latin, not the way we think of it today. You've, you've given that definition. You have that she's about to conceive. It's not that, wait a minute. Sorry, Ben. What is conceive is like to become pregnant, right? Yeah. This is not what I was expecting. This is not like what would Pete ends read. Because the second thing I see is that she's about to conceive. This sounds a lot like, you know, I, I remember Pete ends mentioning, I thought he said that the conception or, or even, yeah, that the conception already happened, right? So this, is, this isn't about the future. This is about the conception already happened. And by the, by the time this boy grows up, then, and, and this is probably, is this, this is probably Hezekiah, by the way, so it was at least a good candidate for this, right? Yeah, it could be Hezekiah. It could be that the young woman also is Isaiah's wife and that this is one of his sons that Isaiah okay. is going to have is Emmanuel. Because the, the, real, the real reason for even saying something like this, again, is just the, to point out that by the time the son becomes of whatever age, something's going to happen. So it doesn't matter who it is. It's a poetic way of giving a timeline of saying, yeah. you know, this is within the next two, three years, this is going to happen. Exactly. So he is called Emmanuel, though. And so what about that? So it turns out Emmanuel does, everybody knows Emmanuel means God with us, right? But do you know what Ezekiel means? God Ezekiel will, means God will strengthen, God right? Will strengthen, right? And so the, both of these names are these whole sentences, right? It just isn't clear that saying his name is Emmanuel means that he is Jesus of Nazareth or right. even the Messiah. Sure. Right? Yeah. Sure. So that's, if we start there and we realize that later on, the Christian tradition, again, with the evangelists, the New Testament writers, they're going to see the patterns, you know, the themes, the life of the nation of Israel, and they're going to make Jesus the embodiment of the life of Israel, of the people, mm -hmm. which is interesting, by the way, Ben, from another standpoint, because we think of Jesus as the bridegroom on the one hand, and then Israel would be the bride. And in, in classic, you know, I guess what I'm going to do here is just classic mystical exegesis, right? At the same time that Christ is the bridegroom and Israel is the bride, we're talking about the New Testament writers making Christ Israel. And so then what God the Father becomes the, the bridegroom. And that to me, that, that just sounds fine, right? No problem. Jesus is, we think of, we say he's the bridegroom, but if he's Israel, then he's the bride. So what the heck? You know, is he going to marry himself? And the answer is yes, God the Father is going to marry Jesus the Son. But it's all, it's heaven and earth, right? It's hieragamy. So either way, right, we're talking about a marriage between heaven and earth, between right. the divine and the people, that between creator and creature, right? Yeah, and so in that sense, 
since Jesus represents that union, he can sometimes represent either side as well. You know, he's the meeting of God and man in the person. That's the idea with within the Christian tradition. So we also call him the father and the son. Right. In the same way. Yeah. So that's one. Is there another Jesus passage that we want to go into in this week's reading or or just on to other things? So the other Jesus passage to to keep that phrase would be over in chapter nine. And and this particularly starting in verse six, this is what we get like in Handel's Messiah and everything. And and it's in some ways thematically similar to what we found in chapter seven. Right. So if we took if we gave you poetry and now we put it into music, and if you hear that King James language that's in that that's in that score, what's it called? The libretto, right? Hmm. If you hear the King James language that's in the libretto, it's Jesus. It has to be, right? Yeah. Let's read from then from again from Alter. I was reading from Alter earlier. I don't know if I said that. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and leadership is on his shoulders, and his name is called Wondrous Counselor, Divine Warrior, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and etc. Right? So the first thing I noticed, Ben, is that the son has already been born. And if you look at the King James language, it's actually true there too. You just probably didn't think about it because you're reading the old testament and jesus hasn't been born yet and you know this is jesus so Hmm. what does the king james say ben is born is given it's already done but that's not how we read it right because this is jesus and we're reading the old testament so yeah and and some have tried to argue even when it comes to cyrus being mentioned or not cyrus being mentioned but just the idea that that things have already happened in second isaiah you know where it's post-exilic you're in the maybe even return returning or returned again there may be a third isaiah in there so you have these three distinct periods right as you mentioned pre-exile exile and return and the idea is that i guess the way the conservatives read it is that this eighth century prophet is talking about something that hasn't happened yet in the past tense and that just doesn't make any sense i don't think it's a good way to read the bible if if you and if you're worried about losing your your Jesusy passage, there are plenty more. Right? <laughs> there's lots in Psalms. There's lots from Psalms. Don't worry about it. Again, the the idea is: can we get to what is Isaiah intending, and can that enrich our understanding of our own interpretation? Can we get to the actual truth of it, which doesn't have to be something literal? Can we get at the symbol underneath the words that we've been using that we've taken literally? And understand the spirit of the thing, right? The the can we enter the imaginal realm? Get out of our logic and ratiocination, and for some reason I want to say monkey mind, and go into <laughs> go into this in a new way, right? That's that's the invitation. You know what really stood out to me when you read that altar translation, Christopher, was that second part after it says wondrous counselor which in NRSV and also in KJV just says wonderful counselor. The next phrase in NRSV and KJV is mighty God. But in the altar, you said something about a warrior. Divine warrior and eternal father is what I yeah. have. So the mighty God, divine warrior. You know, I can I can see how that that translation came about being mighty, right, is 
is in some ways synonymous with being a warrior and then divine being God. And so you can see that how that translation sort of drifted there, right, on the connotation mighty God as opposed to divine warrior. Those are sort of yeah. overlapping spheres of meaning, but they diverge enough sure. that you're like, oh, wow, okay, this is definitely two different takes. <laughs> yeah, Alter tells us in his footnote to this, the most challenging epithet in this sequence is Al-Gibor, which, which appears to say warrior God. And so the prophet would be violating all biblical usage if he called the divinic king God, and that term is best construed here as some sort of intensifier. So so you have all these names, by the way. Let, let's pan out a little bit. And again, who could this be? This has to be Jesus, right? Uh, it's, it just called him God. <laughs> right. I mean, these are, well, look, I mean, I'm going to go to something from the New Testament again here a little bit. But first, let me say this. These are throne names, right? These are the names mm-hmm. that when someone ascends the throne, they become bearers of these names because it's not really they who are ruling. It's God who is ruling. They right. are representing God, and therefore they take upon themselves these names. And so I'll give you another example. This is from John Dominic Crossan, God and Empire, Jesus against Rome then and now. Imagine this question. There was a human being in the first century who was called divine, son of God, God, and God from God, whose titles were Lord, Redeemer, liberator and savior of the world. Who was that person? Most people who know the Western tradition would probably answer, unless alerted by the questions to obviousness, Jesus of Nazareth. And most Christians probably think that those titles were originally created and uniquely applied to Christ, but before Jesus ever existed, all those terms belonged to Caesar Augustus. Uh To proclaim him of Jesus, the Christ, was thereby to deny them of Caesar the Augustus. Christians were not simply using ordinary titles applied to all sorts of people in the East. They were taking the identity of the Roman emperor and giving it to a Jewish peasant. Either that was a peculiar joke and a very low lampoon, or is what the Romans called majestas, and we call high treason, and that they will crucify you for. Remember, your, your crime has to be against the state to be punishable by crucifixion. Wow. Yeah, that's a statement. These are titles that belong to kings because they're God's titles and the king represents God. Yeah. They're throne names. So with that, again, we don't deny what the New Testament authors are doing. We just want to better understand it. And I think, you know, with this, we can say, okay, again, with the explanation that we shared from Pirens, that they're going to find what is the story of Israel and make that Jesus's story or show how Jesus' story parallels the story of Israel and make him then the embodiment of that people. It's helpful to understand why your tradition interprets things the way they do and that other traditions might interpret it differently. And it opens up your mind and I think it enriches your interpretation, even if you choose to stick with that as your most important meaning of that interpretation, right? And then you might come to a point where you say, hey, actually, I think it's okay if there's multiple interpretations that I am even willing to accept and adopt from this scripture. So That's right. Yeah, you because you can have you can have both Jesus as a bridegroom and a bride. Yeah. And because Israel can be them, him, or you and me. Yeah. That's the idea. Yeah. 
Okay, so I know that there are a couple other things you wanted to go into, Ben. The coolest name in the Bible, biblically correct angels, right? Yeah. At least those those things yeah. stood out. Yeah, yeah. I'll get to those in a bit. I'll, I'm going to go okay. sequentially here, just on some of the stuff I wanted to to point out. Oh, I know that. I'm just keeping him listening till the end. Ben. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are these are you know sneak peeks, right? So stay tuned. Stay stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go to chapter one, verse eighteen. And this is a verse that, again, you know, I'm very familiar with this language out of the King James Version. And so if I read from the NRSV, I get a little different take. And it's like, oh, I know what verse this is, but the translation is slightly different. And it brought something out for me that I really liked this time. So chapter one, verse 18, come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The King James Version says, come, let us reason together. And I think that's a perfectly valid and beautiful translation. But what I really liked about this NRSV translation is that it connotes a a struggle, a wrestle, a a prayer process, a repentance process that's actually going on. And I think the KJV sort of, I don't know, plasters over that as if it's just the the discussion between a person and God in terms of their repentance process is just this, you know, really mild, peaceful, you know, submissive process from the start. And Here in the NRSV, it says, come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. And man, I just, I know that moments that I've had in prayer and repentance and struggling with the Lord have been arguments. (laughs) And I like that represented in the scripture, because what it tells me is that at the end of that argument, when I have finally understood where the Lord is on this, and I'm willing to accept that as my will as well, then that is what repentance is. I'm coming to view things like God sees them. And that's what is then represented in those following verses about this sin, you know, by like scarlet, be like snow, red like crimson, shall be like wool type of thing. And I think that that is not so obvious in a verse that just starts off with reasoning together, right? Or at least it wasn't to you because it was so familiar, right? And so you look at another translation, come, pray, let us come to terms, the Lord said. Hmm. Alter writes. Come to terms, you know, that that connotes a, a negotiation between two parties, right? Coming to terms. So At least a negotiation of meaning at the very least, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, coming to terms with an author, right? The idea of understanding what when they say when they use this word, they mean what they mean, not what you mean when you use that word, right? That's what what's meant yeah. by coming to terms with an author. I also think I about it in like legal in a legal sense, like if you have two parties and they they have ter- the terms of their agreement, right? They they come to right. terms. So right, and you have here offenses, so why not? Yeah. yeah, and so then this passage, you know, just like the passage we read before, was was about it was about a Messiah, 
and and it was about someone who's a political messiah, right? And this passage here, it it has these, you know, you have the, well, okay, it doesn't say this, but elsewhere in the Bible, we're going to find out that our garments can be washed, even though they be red, they can be washed white in the blood of the lamb, which again, makes no sense, right? They're going to be washed white with red. Mm, Yeah, we'll get to that. Mm. Right. So this is... This is another passage that for a Christian evokes images of Jesus and the atonement. The other one is this, the next one I'm going to go to in chapter two is this probably one of the most famous phrases in all of the Bible. And it is very close to our theme in Latter-day Peace Studies. So I'm going to go here to verse four of chapter two. And I'm curious about the altar translation on this as well, Christopher. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. So again, you know, we're this is Isaiah speaking what we, we might call messianically, right? He's talking about a time in which the people will be reconciled with their neighbors. Now, what we find out later is that it's, yes, they're reconciled with their neighbors, but, you know, Israel is is the the leader. They're the, the one who rules over everybody because they're the most excellent, right? But the idea here is that war will become a thing of the past. Everything, all the resources that have been put into wars will be put into peace, will be put into food into providing for people rather than into seeking power and conquest and gain. Yeah, you know, I'm not even going to read the author translation because it doesn't vary that much. And that brings up another point. Just as you can triangulate, if you're reading different translations, none of them are the original. You're not able to read the original, let's say, right? You don't know Hebrew, you don't know Greek. And so you read different translations, and and some of us discovered this when we read translations into different languages, but even reading translations into your own language, different translations, there are so many in English, you can sort of triangulate that if they're different, then the original is probably somewhere in, in there, right, in between there. But sometimes you find that the language matches up pretty well across three different translations, and now you can say something like, okay, well, that's probably pretty much what it says then. Unless, and this is a this is a caveat, I cannot help but think of the book of Job, which is so infamously difficult to translate. And one of the problems that that is that we've had with it is that translators have relied on well, guesswork is one problem, and then the other one is on each other. In other words, right. the same errors are perpetuated. There is that. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes when things are translated the same way, it's just because one person just you know quote-unquote plagiarize the translation from the person before him. <laughs> right. But in this case, you know, with Alter, where we stand today in biblical scholarship, that's not that's not what's happening, right? It, he's going to go into the, the Hebrew and he's going to, and he's going to, he knows his Hebrew really well. He, he'll look at other translations. I, I always use, you know, if there's another translation of what I'm translating, I'll look at it. And maybe you even borrow some lines, you give credit. Stephen Mitchell borrows some lines from Emerson and Rilke in his translations of of the Psalms, you know. So one other little thing I want to take a look at is in chapter 5, verse 25. 
So we, we, this is an example of a phrase that repeats multiple times within the book of Isaiah. And in my mind is always that King James translation of it. When I looked at the NRSV, it has something slightly different that, that comes out to me. So verse 25 of chapter 5, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. The mountains quaked, and their corpses were like refuse in the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Well, that's, like I said, NRSV. In the King James Version, that last sentence is, For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So the KJV has but, and the NRSV has and. And these connote yeah, two different meanings here. Because you could say his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. What is his hand stretched out to do? It's stretched out in the and verse, it's stretched out to punish. In the but verse, it's stretched out to save or to redeem or to deliver. And so depending on what you where you go with that, you can you can do two different things with that. Now, this is a direct allusion because the, the same words and phrases are used. This is a direct allusion to Exodus where Moses stretches out his hands and sometimes it's for, ultimately it's for the deliverance of the people, right? But it's also for the destruction of the Egyptians. And so we look at this verse and we say, okay, the Lord's hand is stretched out. What are the people seeing is happening here? Well, it's the destroying of their enemies and the deliverance of his people. Ben, you're going to love this. I know you are. Mm, okay. And I love and I and I love it. I don't read it the way you do. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Tell me. I don't. I don't. I just don't see any difference whether it says and or but. And Alter has it and by the way. And we know that like like Arabic that we know Hebrew is full of. And, 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 right? There's no punctuation. Mm -hmm. There's just va, 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 right? <laughs> so, you know, I don't, I don't see any difference between and and but, but I, I just love that that happened. This is not scripted. This, this is happening live. At, well, you're <laughs> listening to a recording, but it's happening for us live. So, yeah, I don't see the difference there. I want to back up one verse, though, because there's something else here I noticed. For they have spurned the teaching of the Lord of armies. This is something, as I read Alter, I, it stood out to me. I'm, if I remember correctly, if, I, if I'm guessing correctly, it says Lord of hosts in KJV, right? Yes. And I know, you know, hostess, you know, I know my Greek, you know, it's like, yes, these are armies, right? But does the average latter-day saint king james bible reader no hosts or armies i don't know maybe maybe you do maybe you don't it's used enough we're talking when about they the talk lord of about, armies here yeah when they talk about armies and battles the the hosts of israel is used enough that i think that 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 understanding of that nuanced meaning is there so now everybody who who knows that hosts or armies is nodding the one way <laughs> and everybody who's listening who who didn't know is, yeah, well, I didn't know that. Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> <laughs> we say the hosts of heaven as well, you know, like... We do our best. Heavenly well, hosts. Well, again, the hosts of right? heaven, yeah, I mean, are those armies then? I mean, yeah, oh, again, okay. I, I know that's the meaning. I don't know that that's what's in people's minds when they hear these things. Yeah. I think when we hear these things so often, they just take on that mimetic quality that you mentioned. And you saw what I did, right? I, I was able to associate the 
what was it the crimson and the whitening and the and the blood of the lamb and the right. wa- garments being washed clean i don't even know where i got that from ben you know it's not mm-hmm. like i know the chapter and verse or book or whatever it's obviously from the new testament and if i know it by the way i usually know it in king james english and i still say king james english is for me it's the it's my go-to choice when i if i'm going to memorize something Hmm. It's well, unless I'm memorizing the original and giving my own translation. A couple last things that I have to mention are are one probably one of my favorite names in all of the Bible, and that's chapter eight. This is the name that. Wait, are we are we coming to the coolest name in the Bible and biblically correct angels? Yes, this is exciting. Yes, yeah. So coolest name in the Bible here. This is the name that. Isaiah is supposed to give his son and it's Mahershalal Hashbaz. And I just think if say that I, three times fast, yeah, if I have another son, I will probably try to convince my wife to name him Mahershalal Hashbaz. <laughs> no, you won't. I've always loved it. But the translation that, I mean, there, there's multiple translations given of this, but the one that I prefer is just the, the simple destruction is imminent. See, that's, that's what I was thinking of naming my son, but like just in English, you know, <laughs> destruction is imminent yeah and that would have been prophetic by the way if i had decided to name him that when he was born because look what he's done <laughs> that's right i'm kidding it's fulfilled by so the time chapter, he's two years old just like that that's the chapter right said, exactly right? yeah <laughs> so chapter seven verse of the fulfillment of the destruction what chapter and verse are you reading from oh eight one verse three okay and four are you ready for are you ready for alter's literal translation of the name ben yeah Hasten, booty, hurry, spoils. Yeah, the spoils, speeds, this prey hastens. Yeah, I mean, that's it literally means, but like, you know, it means an army is coming to destroy us. So I like destruction is imminent. <laughs> yeah. And now for biblically correct angels. Now, if you're trying, if you're trying to draw biblically correct angels, you're going to get something you, you may have been missing from this episode. This is important. Yeah, chapter 6, this is Isaiah describing the vision that he has of the Lord. And he he talks about the angels that he sees. He calls them seraphs. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. And with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we've talked in previous episodes about euphemisms that the Bible uses a lot of times. And so, you know, when they're referring to the genitals, they'll often say the thigh or the hip or the leg or sometimes even the feet. And so it's possible that that's what is going on with these these wings, that they're covering the right, genitals, I remember, not necessarily the feet. So. Right. So there's a pro tip if you're drawing biblically correct angels. Yeah. I remember, I seem to remember Ruth uncovering Boaz's feet. Correct. Yeah. Right. And we Which went is interesting that. okay. because that's a controversial interpretation to say that's a euphemism. Many schol- even scholars will say, no, 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 that's not right. But others is like, it seems pretty obvious. <laughs> it, it seemed pretty obvious to me. It was a marriage, right? So we'll refer the listener back to that episode on Ruth. So, you know, I was reminded listening to that that description of those angels, I was reminded of what a speckled snake wrote, right? That I shared. 
Mm. you know, of this giant that leaps over mountains. Yeah, if you don't get the cultural context, then... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that sounds pretty scary. I think if if an angel that looked like that appeared to me, I might be scared. (laughs) You know, Isaiah's having an experience, and he's just describing it the best way he knows how. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't... By the way, I don't know that shaking hands would work. How would that... I don't even know what to do. The only last thing I would mention is just some phrases out of chapter 11... These are messianic in nature, and this is what, you know, these these are a little bit Jesus-y, right? So we get these phrases, the spirit of the Lord shall be, shall rest upon him. And, and in the New Testament, when Jesus goes into the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah, it's not this chapter, it's a later chapter that we'll get to. He reads that chapter, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. There's the Messiah that's anointed me, right, to preach the gospel and to the poor, you know, and, and he goes and he reads those phrases, which are specifically within the Jewish tradition were already at that time interpreted to mean these are specific about the Messiah to come. And Jesus said, this is fulfilled in your ears. I'm acting this out right now in front of you. And that's what made them so upset that he was declaring himself as the Messiah because he said, this is talking about me, or I am fulfilling this right now, in other words. And so I just wanted to point out those phrases in chapter 11 that talk about the spirit of the Lord resting upon this person. This is a messianic phrase. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for the kind of Messiah that, that Isaiah seems to be looking for in his context, right, with the with the Assyrians in the first 39 chapters, with other stuff from later cobbled together with that a little bit, and then with the the Babylonians and the Persians, then I don't think someone like Jesus is going to do, right? I mean, now you've got the Romans on your neck, you know, with their boots on your neck. And, uh, and this guy says he's the Messiah. How, how's he supposed to help? He doesn't even seem to care what Rome is doing. He just ignores yeah. the government. He's not, he's not trying to, you know, mm-hmm. run for office or bring down. The, of course, some people have said that Jesus was a zealot. Right, that he was one of those people who was. Well, and that's part of what they were concerned about, right? They were concerned that he might cause an uprising and bring Rome down upon them even more. That was one of their concerns, is they didn't want exactly to be, to be crushed, and th- that ended up happening anyway. You know, later with Titus. So, yeah. So on the one hand, he doesn't really. In the end, I guess maybe at the time that this is being said, it's probably closer to what you're saying, right? This guy is thinks he's the Messiah. What's he going to do? This is going to be a problem for us, right? Right. And then later on, well, he's obviously not. He was no Messiah. We, you know, we called it because look, yeah. he couldn't take on Rome. So it's like it's both and, right? Yeah. Well, all right, Ben. It has been fun. You know, I I have to say, I and I felt a little bit intimidated thinking ahead to Isaiah, and and now that I'm here with with all the background that I've gained along the way. I feel a little more confident. Hopefully, I'm, I'm not being hubris, hubristic. <laughs> but we've got good good resources, you know, good sources. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the same thing. I was going to say I feel not a little more confident. I feel a little less intimidated. <laughs> I was going to go. The Maybe that's direction. a better way to put it. I think I think my hubris got the best of me there. Yeah, a little less intimidated. Yeah. Again, so the question is, can I really understand what Isaiah is saying? Well, and by the way, if you, if you have a hard time with that you know, maybe, just maybe, not trying to figure out how to make it say what you already think it says when you 
it's like, which is it? Do you know what it says or not? Right. Hmm. And of course, there are certain passages that you know well. Oh, and those are Jesus-y, right? Well, we've covered a couple of those, and hopefully, you've seen that they don't have to be read they that way. They don't have to mean they that. could be yeah. read that way. Yeah. So as for the rest of it, you most of us, I think, when I say us, I mean Latter Day Saints. I think many of us, at least, if I can't say most of us, like many of us have no idea what's going on. We think Nephi is odd because he thinks the words of Isaiah are plain and we don't see that, right? <laughs> but again, it's highly symbolic language. You know, back to, what's his name again? Speckled snake. Back to, back to the speckled snake, you know, passage that I read. That's how strange this is. Or maybe, again, if you know U.S. history, maybe that passage wasn't strange. But if you don't know ancient Near Eastern history, all of this stuff is going to be really strange. So we'll do our best to bring you the context and some of the, you know, some of the scholarship and and our own exegesis, you know, especially when it comes to those passages that have been read violently that we can read nonviolently, showing once again that there's just more than one way to read these things. If you have some feedback on the podcast or any of the content that we put out, please leave a leave us a message on our social media on Facebook. There is also an email. You could email us at latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. If it's something that is you know particularly meaningful, useful to us, then you know we'll be glad to share it on a podcast to maybe it critiques our view or maybe it is just enriches it so yeah and you know when it comes to when it comes to podcast platforms it really helps if you review the podcast on apple it helps others to find it also if you have comments about a specific episode when we we do post them on facebook weekly so you can start a conversation there or on youtube unfortunately the podcast platforms don't have a way to comment on on individual episodes but you can certainly leave us a review of the podcast as a whole. And you can reach out to us individually. I get emails and messages via via social media networks all the time. And I appreciate hearing from you. Thanks for reaching out. No, Christopher, I'm not sure how many other people know that you do pretty regular Sunday morning Zoom sessions where multiple people That's join right. and discuss the weekly readings. And so in a lot of those, you get to go into even more content than we cover on the podcast and actually have a discussion about it. And some people know about that and some people don't. If you would like a link to join those Zoom sessions, anyone is welcome. Just email us and we'll get you that link or find our Facebook page and you'll be able to get that as well. So reach out to us and we'll get you that Zoom link and you can join in on that if you're interested. Yeah, is that posted on the on the Facebook page or in the Facebook group? You may have to join the group, but anyone's welcome to join. Join the group. Yeah. And what's that called, Ben? The group is called Latter-day Nonviolence, Pacifism, and Peace Studies. That's an actual group where people can discuss things. The page itself is called just Latter-day Peace Studies. And so we'll often post links to the podcasts and other content there. And to the and in one of those places you'll find a link to the Come Follow Me study group Sunday mornings at eight a.m. Pacific, and I do actually make it a point to bring up things that I don't bring up on the podcast. You know, I don't get to everything. Usually, I'm recording the podcast weeks in advance, and things percolate, and I study more, I get curious, I dig deeper, and I bring something new to the Come Follow Me study group. So please join me for Latter Day Peace Studies. I'm Ben Peterson. 
And I'm Christopher Hurtado. 